So today's podcast, I think, would be interesting for those who are interested in strategy projects. I'm going to talk about a strategy project I was involved in and the challenges we face and basically give you a rundown of what it's like to be on a strategy project. I was an associate when this project was going through, um, you know, MBA, post-MBA level higher. And uh, it was a challenging project, but easily one of the most enjoyable projects I've had in my entire life. Uh, and there were a number of reasons why this project was interesting, right? Just in terms of context, the client that we were you know, doing this project for was a Mexican company, a monster. I mean, this company was huge. It it had revenues, I think, for, uh, my memory, is, is a, I can't remember all the details, but I think it was somewhere between 60, 70 billion dollars. And it was, it was a, it was a monster, you know, company. Um, and it had assets spread all over the country it was state owned uh, and it 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 was very inefficient obviously um struggling to build a cohesive workforce heavily heavily influenced by the government which is extracting you know billions of dollars from its uh, revenue base for its profit base every year to uh, pay, to to buffer up its taxes and because of this lack of investment you know the company hadn't been able to invest in its um in its own assets, and I'm not going to go into the details about the company and you know the industry and so on. But there was a context. Um, we were brought in to develop the R&D strategy for the company. Basically, the feeling within the chairman's office and the CEO's office was the fact that here was a company that was easily one of the largest in its sector, had assets to incredible resources but was just struggling to compete against the private sector players. And the feeling was that the extraction technology being used was not up to par, and the exploration unit wasn't able to deliver. So it, was, it came down to fixing the exploration extraction unit, right? And the issue here was very simple. It was felt that the R&D unit that had been set up many, many years ago had become distracted, become inefficient, uh, wasteful, the business model was not working, and it needed to be changed. And what was nice about this project is that the uh, R&D team was not um, based next to the head office. It was based on the other side of the city, so you know, I'd get in my car every morning, drive across, quite a nice drive actually, and I'd arrive at the R&D center, and we'd be put up into a little room, well not a little room, it was fairly large, on the site for the R&D center, and we were you know, basically given carte blanche. And the one thing I liked about this project is that the culture of the people in R&D were very different from the people in corporate. I did feel that on previous projects I did for corporate, it was difficult to work with people because they were they knew who consultants were, and they were jockeying for positions and making sure that their unit was not cut through our recommendations. Or, you know, quite a few of them had MBAs from Harvard, Stanford, and they tried to show how intelligent they were by trying to make us look silly. I mean, it happens, you know, you gotta, you got to deal with it. But one thing I didn't expect, which surprised me just a little, was how curious the R&D people were about us. I mean, that's what I didn't expect. I arrived there and I expected the R&D people to say, you know what, why do we need consultants? What value will they have? But it, it didn't happen like that. All the way from the top of the R&D unit you know, to the level of some of the senior managers with whom we were working, there was this, I think, very comfortable curiosity on their side to try to understand who were the consultants, what value were they bringing, you know, let's give them what they need, let's learn from them. And it was really nice. I remember the first day we, we came in, 
Uh, I arrived early and I was just waiting in my car until the engagement manager arrived on the project. And then he came through, we went in, um, they set us up. Um, and one of the senior scientists said, you know, why don't I take you guys for a tour? And he took us for this amazing tour. And I was just shocked, blown away by some of the things they were doing that was not at all related to their business, you know. They were doing, tech, they were doing research into how to preserve dolphins and uh, the bottom line is they were doing some stuff that belonged to a science fiction movie there right and the big debate i could see in this company was just a couple of things that i observed very quickly is that they were doing a lot of stuff that was i think far removed from their core business you know extraction and exploration of mineral resources was um it's it's quite a direct, it's quite a simple business in my opinion, you know, having worked in consulting for a long time and observed these things, but they were doing things that were just far removed. If it was even remotely related to the business, they would, they would research it. For example, um, explosives, for example, that was one of the things that, um, that was used in their industry. They didn't need to research explosives because they used contractors for that kind of work, but they had a unit that was exploring explosives. They had something like 50 scientists working on this. A huge drain on resources, not related to the core. I'm not even sure how the results of what this 50-unit team was going to be doing is going to be fed back to head office. But they were doing it, and they were very nice people. And they spent a lot of time showing us what they were doing, taking us for tours of the facilities, the cafeteria. And one thing I liked is that um, the senior the senior scientists were were very open-minded to speak to us. You know, that's one thing I realized very quickly. I mean, these guys all had PhDs. Some of them had double PhDs from elite universities around the world. Very open-minded, and they did have an inquiring mind. So they, we, we felt a little bit like we were being probed by their minds, but not in an uncomfortable way, right? They just asked a lot of questions, and they were very open-minded. If we disagree, they would ask, you know, explain to me why you disagree, but in a, in a very positive way to try to at least understand our viewpoint. To be honest, I did not expect that. So initially, when I went into the project, I thought it would be difficult, but after I spent the first few days, I realized, you know, what, I'm going to enjoy this project. And my role was quite interesting. My role was to come up with a new business model for the R&D unit. And let me explain to you the, the business model the R&D unit had. Well, basically what happened is that R&D, before the dedicated R&D center had been set up, in the uh, late 80s, R&D had been sp spread out across all of the operating divisions and exploration in, in research and drilling and extraction and refinery and, and so on. And it, it seemed to have worked well, but in the 80s, yields and productivity began dropping and there was a view taken that maybe R&D should be brought together to you know, achieve synergy, share ideas and basically build some kind of pride in the work of the scientists. So an R&D center was you know, cobbled together and it was quite a quite a sad looking building. You know, it looked like something from the former Soviet Union um, dropped in the middle of you know, the outskirts of the city close to the desert. Um, it was in the middle of you know nowhere. Sometimes when I was driving out at night or coming home uh, quite late at night, I was always concerned for my safety. But the point is that um, all of this had been cobbled together, and they were doing a whole lot of research in a whole lot of different areas. But the big debate that the company was having is that you had them torn in two directions here, right? One direct, one side of the argument was that they should be doing blue sky research, you know, trying to figure out things that there was no practical application for immediately, but, you know, in the future, there could be practical applications, pretty much like the way Xerox's Park Center was set up, right? And the guys who invented the graphical user interface that then Apple stole and then Microsoft stole, and then now we see on PCs everywhere. And then there was the other group, which was also a very powerful group, which is basically saying, you know what, 
we are not blue sky researchers. We need to do practical R&D, or what they called um, um, the terminology they used was applicable R&D that could be immediately used uh, by the operating units. And because both sides were powerful, you had a stalemate, right, basically. When we say they're powerful, I don't mean they were abusive. I mean, I think this was a really deep intellectual discussion they were having. And pretty much the general manager equivalent for the entire R&D unit was a very, very deep thinker, a thermodynamics PhD. I think he was a double PhD. And he had a master's degree and I think another master's degree. A very, very smart guy. He had been tasked by the executive vice president for R&D to, to work with us to come up with a new strategy. And he was a very nice person. I mean, um, interesting guy to work with. And he had, what, what I think was interesting about him is that his, some of his senior scientists were actually ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG people um, who he had hired in because of the fact that they could think in a different way. So I think that made it a little bit easier for us in the sense that he did appreciate the value of consulting. But um, it was challenging, right? So you had this model being set up whereby R&D had been you know, created by bringing together the fragmented R&D units. And they had to find a way to justify themselves. So they came up with something called a cost recovery model, right? The way it would work is that let's assume that um, you needed a um, water scientist to work on something on your, on your field, uh, as an operating unit. The R&D center would develop a charge-out rate and they, they would then charge that money to, they would then charge that cost to the operating unit. But it was all funny money. There was no cash actually moving, right? It was just a way to make sure they were recovering the cost. There was no actual money going out. All they wanted to know is that, and this is very important, so pay attention, the value of their work recovered the cost of doing the work. The cost of doing the work was all the costs. Manpower, labor, materials, electricity, overhead. They worked out a, a total cost per a scientist. They then allocated a charge-out rate, and they then build him out at that rate. The crucial thing is that this is exactly what many consulting firms like Deloitte and Accenture do, right? They work, I mean, McKinsey does the same thing as well, except their margins and their, uh, that they charge are very different. The vital thing is that while the charger rate was real, there's no transfer of cash, right? So what was happening is is that they would work out, for example, a senior scientist needed to recover revenue of, let's say, I don't know, three hundred thousand, let's say, one hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? He had to do work to the value of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, but there was no actual cash being paid back in. However, if they had a scientist, let's say, who had to recover in $150,000, but was only recovering in $100,000, and that question whether he was doing work of value. Now, obviously, this raised a, a lot of concerns because the purists, the blue sky thinkers were saying, look, in this model, some of our best people are just going out to do any kind of work to recover their costs. It's not even real costs, you know. They were, j they were so scared about having a deficit uh, in their revenue, they'd do anything to over overcome the deficit, even if it was adding no value. And um, I mean, obviously, that 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 made sense, right? The purists were right to say that. The pra the guys who were you know were doing the uh, applicable R and D things that could be immediately applied in the field were also unhappy, because what they were saying, like the special, like the blue sky thinkers, they were saying that well, for the, you know, this model may make sense, but the problem we have is that we have no control over how we allocate stuff you know people need to 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 build themselves out so what's happening is that people are building themselves out wherever they can you know get work 
and even if it means that you know a specialized uh, oil engineer is going to do some very basic chromatography work he'll do it just so they doesn't have to show a deficit so what's happening is that really talented people are being put onto very annoyingly simple projects and so the talent in the organization are being stuck you know being sucked into mundane work and and the core argument really i was you know do we have the right business model is this the way we manage ourselves and linked to this is how do we organize ourselves because once you organize yourself as an organizational structure you know how do you manage the cost allocation around that and that unfortunately was the task i had to come up with you know what is the business model? And I was working with the engagement manager who was responsible for coming up with the strategy of the unit. Someone else was looking at the organizational structure and someone else was looking at the um, best practices for R&D organizations around the world. So it was about a five-man team at the end of the day uh, and a few analysts joined us later as well. But, but at any given time, there were five people on this project. And it was a difficult project because, you know, at that time, the, the consulting firm was working on a lot of strategy work for the Perrin company. And while this project was, in terms of billable revenue, not that large, in terms of influence, which is what we are measured on as you know consultants, not the amount of revenue we bring in in terms of the quality of the work, this would have an enormous impact across the organization because productivity was the single biggest issue facing them. So you know, while we had a lot of consulting teams working on strategy, we had a big say in terms of what was happening. And in every single board discussion, it came up, you know, what is happening to R&D? Why is productivity low? Yes, we know it's an operating problem, but we know there's a lot that R&D could do as well. So that was my, so my role was to come up with the business model. And, you know, when I start a project, I know a lot of consultants tell you it's, you know, working a lot of hours to build up these Excel models initially to build your storyboard. And I think that's nonsense. You know, every consultant you speak to will tell you they built their storyboard on the first night deciding how they're going to do the analysis. And I never operated that way. My job was to understand the organization, period. And that's what I did. I need to understand how this comp the company's business model. That's my starting point. Understand the business model understand exactly what I needed to fix in the business model because fixed, fix is too broad. You know, what is the key question here? Am I trying to come up with a business model which reduces their cost, which hides their cost, which minimizes their cost, which maximizes their revenue? What am I trying to do with the business model? So the first step was trying to understand the business model. And I really, you know, booked as many meetings as I could with the finance people and the senior scientists to understand, you know, how do you come up with this cost structure? <coughs> what does this cost structure help you do? What does this billing model accomplish? You know, why do you have it? You say it helps you keep track of productivity, you know, the value that scientists bring. How do you define value? Why have you chosen this definition? And there's a lot of annoying questions, but you've got to ask these questions. Going out, collecting the information and so on. And just spending time talking to people. I spent a lot of time. In fact, I even followed some of the scientists out on the, you know, jobs. I sat down with them for the day and said, okay, Show me what happens when a, in a call comes through for you to go out and do something. How do you process this? Why do you process it this way? Who signs this off? How do you go and do the work? Who approves it as a completed project? How do they check the you know whether the work was completed? How do you how is your bonus allocated? How do you know you've completed the project? How do you know that the reconciliation on your time is correct? You know, they, and they've actually had this pretty sophisticated internal system that they had set up to track time and hours and build time and so it's pretty much like Accenture and Deloitte and so on, right? You know, just measuring hours you know, like a law firm as well, just churning these guys and just saying, look, this is how much you gotta charge out at us. As long as you charge out at this rate for these hours, you can do whatever you want. And that was really the problem here, right? You know, from from trying to do research work, they're just trying to survive by proving they had no deficit on their billable hours. 
So I spent a week of doing that. And all that time I was basically doing a few things, which is, you know, trying to figure out what drove costs in this organization. And I was actually, in the back of my head, I was trying to think to myself, okay, a decision tree, what drove value? And a decision tree of what drove costs. Now, why do I always start with decision trees? Because when I know that what the drivers of costs, and in this case value, I can then figure out how to model it. But beyond the drivers of costs and revenue, I was also trying to build an activity model. You know, what does a typical scientist go through from the start of being approached for a project to the end of the project when he books the hours and, and collects his sort of fake invoice, right? And then I wanted to see whether I could actually model that. But again, it's not just modeling it. I needed My model needs to answer the question. I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out because it wasn't very clear. I mean, the strategy team is still is just starting out. They're not exactly clear what they're doing yet. The organizational design team was really running quite far behind schedule on that project. So I although I was going to rely on them heavily because I needed to know what structure they're coming out with. Because if you think about this, your your strategy is implemented through your structure, right? A weak strategy could be can be weaknesses in your strategy can be mopped up by having a very sophisticated organizational structure. For example, if an organization knows that it's if for example if the CEO knows his sales staff is weak he'll change the organizational structure to maybe remove the layers between managers and sales staff so they can be more hand-holding. So an a strong organizational structure, an effective organizational structure can mop up a deficient strategy. On the other hand, a strong strategy can make up for a weak organizational structure, right? But we were, what we we're missing in this project is that while the strategy team was plowing ahead and they were doing some pretty interesting work, the organizational design team was struggling a little bit because they were struggling to get their heads around how to structure an organizational unit for the state-owned enterprise as such. And that tension, which is very important in the project, you know, has each team checks each other's, was a little bit lacking. Yeah, eventually, the organizational team caught up, but a bit too late for me. So I had to then start thinking about, you know, well, okay, we're trying to build a business model here, which measures the flow of, you know, funny money across the organizational structure. Now, how would we do that? So what I did is, I paired up with the organizational design team and said, look, for me to do what I need to do, I need to understand the organizational structure. I know you're trying to do that. So why don't we pair up? I need this information. I'll collect it. Some information I need to do my side, the numbers analysis, why don't you collect it for me? So we worked as a team. It was a pretty good team. We started collecting the information. We went for meetings together. Uh, and the meetings were interesting, you know. This is not, you know, an organizational structure and business model, it means so many different things to different people. So we'd, we'd have to go into these meetings knowing full well that we had to control the discussion. That's very important as a consultant. If you leave these things too open-ended, in fact, if you leave it even, as, even if you don't leave it open-ended, people want to put their viewpoint in and they will take the discussion wherever they want to take it. So we have to be very, very careful about controlling what we wanted to extract from these discussions. And it was obviously, you know, enormously interesting uh, to have these discussions with these scientists. But one thing we quickly realized is that once we went into the operating units, the amount of complaints we received was just staggering. Pretty much the operating unit said that, look, we don't use the R&D unit to do R&D work. We use them for maintenance, which... It was quite an eye-opener for us. So you have these brilliant PhDs doing maintenance work as opposed to R&D. 
they're not even doing applicable R&D, they're doing maintenance work. When one of the um, site engineers was telling us that when he runs out of geologists to help him with some of his site mapping to construct new tires, he calls the R&D team and gets them to do the work. So basically, R&D was not doing anything even close to blue sky or, or you know, applicable R&D. They were, doing, they were a glorified maintenance unit, which was important for us to understand you know, basically what kind of skills were being utilized why they were being utilized this way. But also fundamentally, it was also interesting for us to hear that the operating units were not happy with this. They were not happy with this. The reason they were using R&D this way is because they felt they couldn't use R&D for real R&D work. In a one particular uh, interview, which I did, I remember one of the very senior site managers running one of the largest sites for the company was telling us, look, several years ago, we went to the R&D team and we said, look, you've got to help us deal with this waste problem that we're going to experience when the plant is built. We know it's going to be a problem. If we don't deal with that, it's going to cost us a lot of money in terms of permitting. You need to deal with this. Um, it went through a whole lot of discussions at the managing director level, got approval in terms of funding, and it was handed over to R&D. But R&D could never find a team to run the project because each individual was just looking after themselves and making sure they didn't have a deficit in billable hours. So clearly there was no direction at the top in terms of units. I mean, the way R&D was structured is you had the different R&D units. You'd have leaders for each units. But within the units, they were simply looking to develop knowledge in an area, but they were never looking to lead projects. So for example, um, the electrical you know, the electrical controls team would develop a lot of IP in electrical controls, but they wouldn't do a project in electrical controls, which is, uh, people say it's semantics when I brought this up in the case, but it is not semantics. Now, you can be an expert in, let's say, strategy, but if you don't do a strategy project, that's different. An expert in strategy could be someone who knows strategy, the theory, and so on, but what the operating units were saying is that, yes, that's important, you build your knowledge, but we want you to actually do projects for us. So that was very interesting for us. And our challenge was then to reconcile this, right? And um, it wasn't my job, thankfully, the strategy team was leading this. But if you look at the financial analysis, at this point, I decided the only thing I had to do here was to get the actual numbers for the organization. I started digging around for the numbers. And I found this fairly, I think, smart guy senior finance guy who no one was approaching and I obviously made him my friend. It's been my strategy in every single project to make people that are lonely to be my friends so that they will support me with data and so on. And basically what he told me was very simple. You know what? No one knows the cost structure of the organization. If you want to figure it out, you have to build it. And he wasn't being sarcastic or difficult. <coughs> Excuse me. My cold is still here. He was just being honest. He said, no one really understands the cost structure. Everyone, every part of R&D has built their own version of cost structure, their own way of calculating expenses, their own way of calculating overhead. And, and what we have at the corporate level is an estimation. So what's happening is that we don't really know the cost of R&D. You'll have to build this for us. And we spent three weeks building this model. And it's a pretty good model. It wasn't fancy in the sense that it could solve the most difficult problems facing the universe, but it was fancy in the sense that it could answer very specific questions about the R&D cost structure. And we and the nice thing about the model is that I took the actual invoices historically over five years, dumped it into my model, and then I linked my model into the actual trends. So for example, I knew that you know over, for example, four years they were spending like something like you know one percent of their budget, let's say, on stationery, whatever the number is. And I could see which years it went up and why it went up. And I used those ratios into my model. Obviously benchmarking against other companies as well. And what the model was showing us is that 
and the model I built was, you know, what kind of cost does each employee need to recover and why does he need to recover this cost? And the model was, you know, working on different permutations. Now, what if we only had to recover 50% of our costs and the rest of the time was spent working on projects, right? So rather than going out and doing projects for the operating units, what if we spend 50% of our time doing that, but the other 50% of our time actually doing R&D projects at the R&D center? And the model was interesting because what it showed us is that at a certain point, it didn't make much sense to increase your billable hours. You know, it basically the yield on the on the R&D team wasn't a straight line; it was a curved line. So the output of the R&D team didn't become doesn't increase if you work them harder, right? So you know, if you dedicated 100% of the time for the R&D team to do R&D work in the R&D center, I mean pure R&D projects the yield in terms of output patents and so on wouldn't increase. In fact, what we found out if they spend all their time doing R&D projects, they actually become, I would say, less effective at doing R&D. What we found is that they need to spend some time in the operating units, understanding the needs of the operating units, and thereby doing the right kind of R&D projects in the lab. So the model we eventually came up here was something like a 50-50 split where, well, not 50-50, but they had to spend time with the, with the operating units, spending time working with them, understanding the problems they were facing. And then out of the time they're spending in the, R &D, in the operating units, they would have to go back to the lab, work with that operating unit to develop what we called these idea cards that whereby they could design different projects to serve, to solve critical issues facing the operating units. But... We, we created a committee consisting of the operating units and the R&D units to determine which projects would be signed off on. And obviously with the CEO's approval. At the end of the day, we decided that Blue Sky Research was not necessary. It was really not necessary for this project because to be honest, come on, you're a, you're a resources company. Why do you need to do Blue Sky Research? I mean, it sounds good on paper, but it's not helping your shareholders. So we killed almost all the Blue Sky projects. Some still survived, I'm sure, you know. The company had enough alleys and backyards and nooks and crannies without any spotlights. So I'm sure something still survived. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of the organization moved towards doing applicable research, things that could help the operating units become more productive and more efficient, more efficient and more effective. And you know, productivity is not difficult to measure. It's output, it's output divided by input, you know, output of product and manufacturing divided by input as in all costs. And basically, R&D was trying to figure out ways to reduce the um, unit cost, <coughs> excuse me, of exploration and extraction, and also uh, increase the output. And that's what they focused on. The other things we did is we worked on a rotation system, whereby it what had happened over time is that R&D had become so insular from the operating units that they were seeing themselves as different parts of the, of the same organization rather than actually, you know, partners in the same organization. So we were forcing rotations through where we wanted some of the R&D scientists to spend maybe six months or even a year working in the operating units and bringing back some of the um, operating uh, guys into the R&D units to make sure that applicable research was being done. But also, most importantly, that some of these uh, obvious avenues that shouldn't be pursued or should be pursued was being put into the um, uh, discussions. The other thing we did is, which is very interesting, is that we use something called a fast follower strategy. So that rather than reinventing the wheel for a lot of these techniques, we looked at who was, for example, the world's best drilling 
expert, right? It may be a company unrelated. It may not even, it may not even be a company in this field. So rather than looking at just the competitors for drilling, we'd look at who was the world's best drilling expert, even if they were some NASA team somewhere. We would bring their research in and see how we could you know, replicate it. So the strategy was very clear. We would not pursue blue sky research, but basically would copy from the people who are leading in this field. And basically all of the blue sky research, you know, dissolved and disappeared. I can't say that everyone was happy with that discussion. There were a lot of, you know, um, real white collar scientists in that organization who chose to leave. But at the end of the day, was it a blow to the organization? I think it was in some regards. It would have been nice if some of those people stayed behind and worked in applicable research. But that is a call you're going to have to make, right? If you want to do research that's more applicable in the field, you're going to have to have more of the engineering types. If you want to do more blue sky research, yes, more engineers, but those guys were thinking of you know abstract ideas in the field. And the organization eventually pulled away some of its um, research funding and so on and pushed this towards applicable research. The other decision that was made is that the R&D center should not be basically living on the other side of the city. It, it had no interaction with the business. It, the decision was made to split up the R&D center. There would be a core unit, but that would sit close to the head office. Not in the head office, but very close to the head office. Um, not, not because we wanted R&D to you know, occupy some grand pedestal on the board, which is what many consulting firms do when they work for a business unit. The first feedback they'll say is that the business unit doesn't get enough attention of the CEO and they'll try to put it onto the board or give it board attention. And that is wrong. We thought that R&D should get more attention, but it didn't need this massive board attention. But we did feel the chief operating officer needed to be more, much more involved than he was. So we moved the core R&D team closer to head office. But we also split up the R&D team and we moved some of the centers closer to the operating unit. So we felt, we felt that some of the... Um, um, the team working, for example, in extraction should be working with the extraction operating units either out of their regional offices or their head offices or on site with them. So rather than working in you know in this one center and then pushing out knowledge, we decided to break up R and put them with the operating units so it'll be much easier for interaction to take place, build better relationships and better cycling of knowledge. But we, we put the, the R&D under the purview of the chief operating officer, which at the time was very controversial because there was a debate that if we put it under the chief operating officer, what if the chief operating officer pushes R&D to only do things that are you know, short-term in nature? That is a concern, and I agree with that. But if you put it under the chief operating officer, you're pretty sure they're only going to be working on applicable research and not blue sky research. The second thing, and the second thing is that you need to be careful about the metrics in place. So while it was reporting to R&D, it also had a dotted line to uh, one of the uh, board members. Not that we had a board member that's you know looking at R&D, but one board member we had purview uh, for the committee running research. So we created a committee for research in the board, and we had them looking at that. Um, and you know the question you might ask, you know, why do we put such a big emphasis on R&D? Um, at a resources company, because resources companies generally don't work in R&D. They usually you know, drill, drill and dig. But the decision here made a lot of sense because what was happening is that as the fields were being, you know, were being more and more extracted, the um, grade or the type of, of resource being extracted was changing in its chemistry. And because it was changing in its chemistry, it had a profound implication for the value chain in terms of the inability you're going to break this down and process it and who your end consumers would be. 
and the technology to extract the resources was also changing. So the bottom line is that either the cost was going to go up by doing it the old way, or you could invest some money to do it better with the new way and get higher yields. Now, this project was done a long time ago, so I can you know, talk to the results of the project. I would say that it's very difficult to measure the results of this project because soon after the changes were made, there was a huge upheaval in the company with regards to the CEO resigning and leaving. And pretty much caretaker, caretaker CEO was put in who I think didn't manage the company for up to two years. He was then replaced and put, and a new person was put in, brought in by um, someone quite senior with a lot of influence, but he couldn't control the operating units. And what happened here is that when we were there, the CEO was powerful and could control the organization to some extent. Therefore, having a chief operating officer made sense. Right? Through the changes that took place, the organization became more of a federal system. The different operating units refused to report to the CEO. They didn't feel they reported to him. And they obviously, if they're not going to report to the CEO, they're not going to report to the COO. And that's pretty much what happened. You had all this power lying with this chief operating officer, but didn't have the ability to institute it into the operating units because he had no control over the operating units over time. And you know, it's actually difficult to say whether we th obviously thought the R&D strategy would work. I still think it would work. But it's difficult to say because it didn't have the right environment and it didn't have the opportunity to be implemented. I mean, ultimately, the company that we worked for is struggled, is struggling, wholly inefficient, wholly unproductive. From what I understand, they've now, um, you know, brought back their um, um, R&D team into one unit, moved them back to their old facility, and basically doing what they've always been doing. Productivity has dropped by over 28% since we were there. And it's pretty much a sad story. But I think this gives you an idea of you know, a, pro a strategy project not like the typical projects. This is an R&D strategy. Come up with an R&D structure, strategy, organizational design, and business model for a behemoth of a, uh, a company that sits in a very important emerging economy. I personally enjoyed the project. I like the people. I've built friendships there that I've you know, kept on for many years since I've left. But it gives you an understanding of what to expect. Not all strategy projects are the same, you know. Uh, and you notice that we spend very little time looking at competitors here. Why? Because we realized our biggest challenge was not competitors. It was the company's own operating challenges with extracting resources efficiently. But as always, if you have any comments, please feel free to post something. Thanks. Bye.